join me, if you will, uh, in prayer as we come before the Lord. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love sinners and that you pursue people who are not necessarily perfect people. In fact, you pursued people who were your enemies, people who hated you, people who rebelled against you, people who wanted nothing but their own glory. And that is true of each one of us. And yet you patiently, kindly, in a long-suffering and gracious manner, chose us before the foundation of the world and pursued us and sought us out. And in spite of the fact that we did not love you, nor did we desire to be with you, Lord Jesus, you died for us and provided for us everything that we needed to be yours and to be your children of grace. So for this, we thank you, and this we praise you. And as we come to your word this morning, Lord Jesus, would you become greater and would we become less? And would you give us this morning, Lord, not a vision of a man to lead this church, but would you give us the vision from your word of yourself and your glory and your grace? In your name we pray, amen. Friends, brothers and sisters, I guess we are, what, week three, week four in our series in First Peter, uh, and the series is entitled Standing Firm in the Grace of God, and this week our sermon title is entitled Children of Grace, and as we've walked through the past few weeks, we've been going through First Peter 1 and 2, and the opening greeting that Christ has given to a community of saints who are suffering, a community of saints who are hurting. They are the New Covenant saints in the early church, probably around 63, 64 AD, who are scattered throughout the provinces, the Roman provinces of Asia Minor, and they are undergoing severe persecution for their faith, which is only going to ratchet up in time. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a tender shepherd, has sent his apostle Peter as his ambassador to convey his words to this community of people in a letter that's referred to as an encyclical letter. It's a letter that was meant to go throughout the church, not just one specific community, so that they could all hear and have this shepherding. And as we had mentioned before, as we look at throughout the whole book and we look at the beginning and the end, the word grace comes up repeatedly over and over again. And Peter closes in five verse 12, and says, this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. And so we see that Peter's epistle to these communities has a twofold purpose. The first purpose is to provide them with the testimony of true grace, as opposed to the counterfeit grace that is thrown out by the world on a regular basis and which seduces us so often, as Francis, even in his testimony, alluded to during his time at UCLA and growing up, <clears throat> excuse me, even in the church. And the second aspect, in addition to the testimony of the true grace in Christ, the second aspect is really Peter's exhortation. Okay, here is the true grace of Christ. Now I want you to stand firm in it. And what Peter does and what Christ does for his sheep is he demonstrates to them, as we've said repeatedly, the one thing that hurting and suffering people need. He provides for them the true grace of God in Christ. And then he calls them to do the one thing that hurting and suffering people need to do, to stand firm in the grace of Christ. But the interesting thing as we go through this, as we look at the greeting, and we're going to look at 1 Peter 1 and 2 today, is that 
Our Lord and Savior, through Peter, decides to start not in a, list, a to-do list of things to do as he exhorts them to stand firm in the grace in Christ. His discussion of grace and how we're to stand firm in it begins with addressing their identity of who they are in Christ. And as we dealt with last week, we said that Peter begins by identifying them as aliens of the diaspora, particular type of aliens in the diaspora, elect aliens in the diaspora. And we said that this is actually, these three terms are references to Old Testament biblical terms that are pointing out to these people that their true identity is the identity of the chosen people of God and Christ, that they are, in fact, children of grace. And then what Peter is going to do in those first two verses is he's going to spend the beginning of this letter explaining the doctrine of election and what that doctrine has to do with their identity as children of grace. The doctrine of election is a very, very, very controversial doctrine. And in spite of the fact that it is repeated from Genesis through Revelation, and I know you've been shepherded in this many times in this church and you're well taught, but the truth is, is that within the greater realm of, of the Christian church, many men have been thrown out of churches or persecuted for embracing the doctrine that is very, very clearly displayed in Scripture from Genesis through Revelation. And so it's interesting that Peter, as he has a testimony of grace and an exhortation of grace, begins with the doctrine of election. And that's what we find in verses 1 and 2. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter, and we'll read just those first two verses together. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. The question may arise as we begin the text and look at the identity of these people as children of grace and then Peter spending all of verse 2 going into detail about their election as children of grace. What does election have to do with hurting saints and people who are suffering? When friends who come in to visit you when they have been through tough times, when churches are going through tough times and difficult decisions have to be made, when there are crises in marriages and crises in relationships, I think for most of us, election is not necessarily the first thing that comes to mind. But hopefully as we walk through this, we're going to see the bigger picture that Really, when we look at the doctrine of election, what we're really looking at is the doctrine of our parents, our spiritual parents, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in order to appreciate our true identity and who we are and what is the path forward and the steps forward during any time or any moment, what is essential for us is to know who our parents are, who our true spiritual parents are. When I was around five years old, 
I uh, was being taunted and tormented by my older brother on the back porch. It was a late afternoon in Toronto, Canada. It was summertime. It was hot and humid. And my brother, who uh, astutely realized that he was getting a rise and a reaction out of me, decided, you know, this is a good thing that I've got going, so I'm going to ratchet it up. And, and my mother was nowhere to be found, and so he decided to go full tilt. And ultimately, I had a meltdown. And... Uh, I ended up uh, throwing a temper tantrum, and then I ended up cussing like a sailor, as my mother would say, for an extended period of time. And I looked for every angry, horrific, filthy word that I could possibly find to spew at my brother at that time. Surprising, I know. What an angel I should have been, but I was not. And uh, there is... Um, few things more amazing than the speed of an angry mother because out of nowhere my mother appeared and as a godly woman that she is she did not hesitate uh, to bring the rod uh, and the rod was brought and I was disciplined I was later nurtured and bathed because she knew I was in a fragile state and put me to bed and then later there was an interrogation as to where exactly did I learn uh, that string of wonderful terms. Um, and I, you know, quite honestly not knowing the meaning of many of those terms, just said, hey, you know, the guys A, B, C, D, listed a number of my friends in the schoolyard in, in junior kindergarten or senior kindergarten at the time, basically, who had schooled me in the ways of the world. And I was like, you know, and my mother made very clear to me that just because that was acceptable with everybody at school that we were different and that I was her son and that I was the son of my father and that we were chins and that chins did not speak that way and that we had a family that honored the Lord and we did not speak that way. And I don't know whether I completely got it at the time but ultimately, one of the consequences which shaped my life after that, which I was unaware of, was that that incident helped precipitate my parents pulling me from the public school system and shipping me off to some evangelical conservative Christian school. And so the rest of my future and my destiny was set <laughs> after that. Um, but as time went on, okay, as I went to that school, I was a wild child, and, and parent-teacher interviews were always something to dread, and I ended up in the principal's office on a recurrent basis, and it was basically a heavy burden for my parents as they walked through that. But something happened as we went along over a period of time. I was able to see that my parents, in order to make it possible for my brother and I to be at that school and to be at church and to walk a particular path, were actually making huge and incredible sacrifices, incredible sa sacrifices financially, incredible sacrifices on their time. And what became apparent to me as I got older and progressed with time was that where I was and the place I was at was the product of choices and plans that my parents had made, choices and plans that I actually had no control over. And in the beginning, I rebelled against many of those plans. But as time wore on, I was able to see that at great cost to themselves, my parents, out of love, were denying themselves and sacrificing out of love in order to make those choices and plans a reality so that their son could be a godly man and have the, the framework, not that they could save me, but that framework would be there for me 
and that ultimately that they would give me and in their mind the Lord every opportunity for me to know the Lord and to have a life of grace. And as that started to sink in over a period of time, it did, in fact, start to impact my behavior and my actions. God was gracious. I got saved during that time that I was at that Christian school. Um, but ultimately, there started to become a realization. There was a realization of who my parents were. There was a realization that they loved me. There was a realization that the things that they had asked me to do that seemed onerous or burdensome at the time were actually, ultimately, out of love for me, for their desire to see me become the man they hoped me to become to be one day. And when parents come in to see me in the family practice office and they're with their kids and they're struggling or they're, they're, they're being challenged, I often tell them to try and encourage them. I, I say to them, I did not appreciate, be patient, I don't think I really appreciated the sacrifices and love and really who my parents were for the decisions that they made for me and the plans and the choices that they made on my behalf until I was probably late 20s, early 30s. And then things started to come together and there started to become a growing appreciation for the fact that everything that they had done was out of love. But here's the flip side of that. I had nothing, done nothing to deserve or merit that love, and I had done nothing to merit that grace. I didn't choose to be born into their family. I didn't choose them as parents. I didn't make their choices, and I didn't make their decisions. Everything I had ultimately was a gift of grace that God gave to me through my parents. And so as we look at 1 Peter and the fact that he spends verses 1 and 2 and goes into great detail into this doctrine of election, what he's doing when he comes to them and says, you are God's chosen people, you are children of grace, and you are elect children of grace, that you're here because of election and God's election or choosing of you. What he's doing is he's informing them and letting them know that who they are and the consequences of who they are, the challenges that they're facing and the suffering and the difficulties that are there are all in the bigger picture a product of God's love for them and his plans that existed for them before the beginning of time and that it is all of grace and that even though they are struggling and having difficulty right now, there will come a time and there will come a place where they will have an appreciation of who their true father really is. And they will see in the bigger picture that God was using all these things, including the evil of men, for his good, to glorify himself and to exalt his people. And when they begin to have an appreciation of how much grace is actually involved and the love of the Father for them, they are going to be equipped to deal with the crises at hand. They will have a guide for the path forward. And they will know how to stand firm in the grace of God. And so what I want to do for the next three or four weeks, Lord willing, is to go through each aspect of our election in Christ. What, is, what do we mean when we talk about election? What exactly does that mean? We just went through an election recently where we elected a president to the United States. The term 
eklektos, which is, means elect, comes from the verb kaleo, which means to call. And election in the Greek, the actual Greek words means to call out. It means to separate. It means to set apart. And when we think of our election recently, what, has exa what exactly has happened? The American people have gathered together and they have made a choice or a decision and they have set apart a man. They have called him out from the rest of the Americans for a particular place and for a particular purpose. And the consequence of that election is that this man will never be the same again. The rest of his future will be completely different because he has been set apart for a particular purpose where he is exalted and he is elevated to a place that will determine not only his destiny but the destiny of the rest of the American people. Now that's a partial view of what election is. And we don't have a problem with that election because we were able to vote and we were able to make the choice. Sometimes some of the challenges <clears throat> excuse me, that we have with the doctrine of election is because we're not the ones who are doing the choosing. But when we consider election in the context of God and that it's God who's doing the election, Peter raises in verse 2 three aspects of election which highlight the significance of any particular election. And those three factors that highlight the significance of a given election is number one, who is doing the electing? Who is the person who's electing? Number two, how is that election accomplished? And number three, what is the purpose for that election? I could come to you and I could go, Dan and Mina, I elect you as the President of the United States of America. Do you think Dan and Mina would be jumping up and down and, and celebrating and rejoicing? No, because that election is completely worthless because it's Mark Chin who's electing them, okay? And we could be in some third world dictatorship and we could elect a per particular person, or I'll even take an example. We're, we're, we had an election of elder nominees. I could have gone out there and filled all the ballots, okay? that I wanted Bob and Huey and Dan and whoever else and just packed them with like hundreds of ballots, what would be the worth of that election? Absolutely, absolutely nothing. Or we could have an election for you folks, for someone to be the president of the Mark Chin fan club. And we would say, that's great. That's great for me, but what is that really worth? Because the purpose in place is actually meaningless. And so to appreciate the notion of election, we really have to think, who is it who's electing? How is that electing happening? And ultimately, what's the purpose? And as we look at verse 2, Peter has done exactly that. He has said, who is it who does the electing? It's God. Every member of the Trinity is involved. God the Father, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, and God the Son. And then he explains how it's done. That you have been elect to become the children of God according, first, to the foreknowledge of God. You have been elect, how? By the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. You have been elected for what purpose? To obey Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. 
And today we're going to look at that first aspect. What is really the basis of our election? What is the basis of God choosing you to be a chosen child of God? And that basis is the foreknowledge of God. As you look at this text and as you look at verse 2, which points out why and the basis and the purpose and how you have been set apart to be an alien of the diaspora, an outsider, a foreigner, a stranger in this world, which is a fallen world, which is a sinful world, which hates God and hates his word and hates anybody who possesses that word. Why have you been chosen and set apart to be a child of grace? As we look at that, we have to say from the start with this election that like all children, we have done nothing to merit this. And this is entirely a work of God. And it is entirely based on the choices of God. Now, let's step back and say, okay, now as we go through this, what was really the basis of God choosing you, me, anybody else? And what was God's basis of choosing these people? Was it because they were smart? Was it because they were good? Was it because that they worked really hard and did all their homework and answered all the questions in the Bible study? Peter comes out and says, you're elect according to none of those things. And you're not elect according to any choice or decision you've made. You're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And to give you a little bit of framework, if you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy 7, if you, if you could. And what we're going to deal here is with the election of the Old Testament people of God. Deuteronomy 7.7 7 and Deuteronomy 7.8 says, The Lord did not set his love on you, this is the nation of Israel, nor choose you, and that's election, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you, and kept the oath he swore to your fathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That theme goes on over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament to the New Testament, that the Lord did not choose on any merit of the people of, of their own, but it was on the basis of his love. And what I hope to show you as we walk through the doctrine of election and the foreknowledge of God that what we're talking about here with election is the grace of God and his unmerited favor. And what we're talking about with the foreknowledge of God is we're talking about his love, his love that is expressed in his plans for his people. And that the basis of sinners being chosen to become his children and to have new life and to become children of grace is entirely based on the love of God in Christ. Peter tells us that the basis of God choosing these people, that the basis of election is the foreknowledge of God. What do we mean by the foreknowledge of God? There's a lot of confusion on that aspect. When we look at the Greek term, the Greek term is one that you and I are all familiar with, in part because Cornerstone Bible Church is rich with physicians. I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But it's the term prognoskin or prognosis. So Albert and Huey and all the others and Dr. Roth can tell you that 
when we're talking about foreknowledge on a human level, we're talking about prognosis. Gnosis being knowledge and pro meaning before. Knowledge beforehand. And when we think of a prognosis or a medical prognosis, we're usually in front of a physician and they are, we usually have an illness or a disease and they give us a prognosis. And what they're doing is they are explaining in advance the nature of the disease, the course of the disease, and the likely outcome of the disease and how that's going to affect our lives. On a human level, that gives us some idea of the idea of foreknowledge, of knowing beforehand. And on a human level, many people have interpreted the notion of foreknowledge as that God looks down the avenues of time. He's like a fortune teller who can see bits and pieces ahead of time and sees the information. And he knows whether Jerry's going to be a good guy or Mark's going to be a bad guy, or Huey's going to be maybe in between. One day he's going to be good, and the other day he's going to be bad. And he's going to look at that and say, okay, these men are worthy, and these guys are going to respond in the right way. So, you know, I, I'm going to choose Huey and Jerry, and I'm not going to choose Mark. Okay? And when you go through, many people look at it that way. But the truth is, is if we're really going to understand what foreknowledge is, we have to realize the rest of the sentence, that the foreknowledge that Peter is talking about is not the foreknowledge of human beings where we see in part, but he's talking about the foreknowledge of God the Father. He's talking about the foreknowledge of the first person of the Trinity. He's talking about the foreknowledge of the sovereign creator of the world who created the earth in six days and all its creation. He's talking about the foreknowledge of the one who sustains everything by the word of his power. He's talking about the first person of the Trinity, God our Father, who providentially keeps not only everything going, but rules the minutest detail of every aspect of our universe, even as we sit here. As Jesus said, he has each hair on our head numbered, easier for some of us than others. But he knows when the sparrow falls, and not one sparrow will fall apart from his will. As David said, he knows our thoughts and our words even before we say them. He is the God who is also the judge of the universe every minute and moment, and he is also the sovereign God who is the Savior, who has crafted this world from its beginning to its end. How does David describe this God? He says, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was none of them. Psalm 139.16. So as we consider the foreknowledge of God, we're talking about something different than a medical doctor sitting in front of you with bits and pieces of information. We're talking about the knowledge of God. Now this is challenging for us because we live in an information era. We live in a technology era. And in this time and era, knowledge very much often is about the possession of information. And the purpose of knowledge, as Sir Francis Bacon alluded to and the philosopher Hobbes alluded to, the, the pursuit of knowledge very much is often about power. He who has the most information and he who can command the technology and he who has the most knowledge has power. And that's oftentimes how knowledge works in the corporate setting. And unfortunately, that's how knowledge has often worked in many parts of the church and the history of the church. And that's how knowledge often works in communities of people. It's about the possession and power of information and the power that comes from that. 
But I bring you back to this issue that we're talking now about the knowledge and foreknowledge of God. And as we think about the knowledge of God, about what he knows, as we look at the biblical text and go from Genesis through Revelation, we see that knowledge with God is something that is anchored and rooted in his love. That knowledge with God is a relational knowledge, the way we would know members of a family. That knowledge with God is complete and not partial. And so when we go to Genesis 4 and we see how the language of knowledge is used there, in some Bibles, they literally interpret Genesis 4 as Adam knew his wife, Eve, and they produced a son. And you think, okay, what does knowledge have to do with the production of a child and the relationship between a husband and wife? And yet that term, yada, is being used very much in the sense of a knowledge that's derived from God because it's a relational knowledge. It's about an intimacy, an intimate knowledge between two people within a covenant relationship that is guarded and bonded by faithfulness that ultimately affects the destiny of those two people, that ultimately draws those people together as one, and that ultimately produces a fruit of love. And that gives you a window and idea when we talk about the knowledge of God. We're talking about a different type of knowledge. And so when God says to Jeremiah in his call in Jeremiah 1.5, before you were even born in your mother's womb, I knew you. And David says similar things. And so you see the knowledge of God is the notion that he has set apart someone as an object of his value and his concern, as someone who is precious to him, and you've been set apart for a purpose, to be his possession, to be his bride. And that knowledge is an intimate acquaintance an intimate knowledge, an intimate understanding, not just about information or details, but about everything about you for a specific purpose. And that purpose is ultimately a knowledge that exalts the creator, and it's a knowledge that exalts the creation. So that the two both participate in the glory of God. This is the type of knowledge we're talking about, past, present, and future. And so when we talk about the foreknowledge of God, what we're talking about is that before any of us existed, before the foundation of the earth, the Lord knew every aspect, past, present, and future of his creation, and he had a special knowledge for those he had chosen before the beginning of time to be his children of grace. And the illustration that the Bible uses from the Old Testament to the New Testament is the idea of the master potter with the clay. This is used in Genesis, which Moses alludes to in the creation of Adam and Eve. This is used by Jeremiah. This is used by the prophet Isaiah. This is alluded to in Jesus' miracle of the blind man when he puts mud on his eyes. And this is also used extensively by Paul, especially in the book of Romans. And I'm going to read to you from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 64, 8. He says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. 
And the idea of who God is and his foreknowledge and his love and our destiny is brought together in this idea of the master potter with the clay, that before he even puts his hand to the clay, the master potter already in his mind's eye knows exactly what he's going to do with that clay. He knows exactly the destiny of that clay. He already has in mind a vessel that is shaped for the purpose of his glory so that by the time the finished product is done, there is a vessel for his glory that all can see and all can view and all know that this is the workmanship and craftsmanship of the master potter, which will bring glory to the master potter and also will exalt that vessel from what it was, a piece of dirt. There's a reason that that illustration is used all the way through, all the way through, all the way through, that before the master potter has even put his hand to that lump of clay, there is a foreknowledge, there is a divine intent, and there is a plan that is based in the love of God that has already shaped the past, the present, and the future. And nothing, because this is the master potter, is going to deviate the father from that plan. In 1824, May 7th, there was a premiere of a symphony in Vienna, Germany. And it was a very successful symphony. And at the end of that symphony, there was a roar of applause and cheers. But what happened at the end of that symphony is the crowd cheered and applauded. The conductor of that symphony still had his back and he turned and he was oblivious to the audience cheering and applauding him. And the singer who participated in that symphony had to come to that conductor and turn him around so that he could face the audience and receive the applause and the cheers of the audience for the symphony that he not only conducted but that he wrote. It was the symphony number nine in D major by Beethoven. And the reason that lady had to come to him and the singer had to come to him to turn him around was because he was almost completely deaf, if not completely deaf. In fact, Beethoven had been deaf since his 20s and had wrote the better part of the last series of his symphonies, if not completely deaf, almost completely deaf. And his greatest final work, which many consider to be his, his pièce de résistance, his masterpiece, Symphony Number no. 9, was composed in that way. And you ask yourself, how could a man compose this magnificent symphony being deaf? And the answer is the foreknowledge. The answer is the foreknowledge that without even hearing a note, Beethoven already had in his mind the music in his head. He had every note and he knew where it needed to be placed. And it came together in a beautiful symphony. And from that time, in the past two centuries, Symphony Number no. 9 has been played repeatedly. And people stand in awe and consider the marvel and wonder of music that came from one man's head, from the foreknowledge of that symphony and the grace that people have received through that. Now, if this is true of a man who's a composer, how much more so for the master potter, the God who created the earth in six days? And what Peter is coming to these people and he's saying is, You're suffering for a minute and a moment, but your life is a series of notes. 
And they, each one of them, each moment, has been seen ahead of time by God. And it's not by accident, and it's not by mistake, but it's according to the love that God has for you, that he has set you apart to be a child of grace. And he has a plan for you, and he has a purpose for you, that you ultimately would be exalted by his glory, and that everybody would see his glory, and that his glory would be exalted by who you are, and how you walk through this path. And there is not a note that's out of tune, and there's not a note that God has not already foreseen, and he has not already planned. Peter had a special attachment to this. Why? Because Christ, on a repeated basis, had gone over God's plan with Peter. He had said to him that the Son of Man needed to be handed over to his enemies, and he would be betrayed, and he would be crucified, and he would be raised on the third day. And if you remember, Peter had great difficulty with that. Peter had great difficulty with the foreknowledge of God. Peter had great difficulty with the plans of God. Peter had great difficulty for the choices of God. And the challenge, of course, for Peter was that he was about to lose someone he loved, and he could not bear or tolerate the thought of being separated from Christ his Lord and his Savior. And so Peter resisted, 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 as we've talked about in past weeks. But ultimately, as Peter resisted the foreknowledge and plan of God, the foreknowledge and plan of God still prevailed. And it was greater than Peter's sin, and it was greater than Peter's betrayal. And ultimately, God planned what God had planned was achieved. And by God's grace, because Peter was a child of grace, Peter was part of that foreknowledge and that plan. And after the cross, part of that plan was that Christ pursued Peter and Christ restored him. And so as Peter shepherds this flock and this community, you can almost hear perhaps Peter saying, don't make the same mistake that I did. Don't ignore the word of the Lord. And don't ignore the foreknowledge of the Lord because it is in love and it is the master potter. And certainly you can resist and certainly God transcends your choices. And you can rebel if you want to, but ultimately God's symphony will prevail and his glory will be exalted. And you have to make a decision here. Will you submit to the foreknowledge of the cross? Will you submit to the foreknowledge of suffering if needs be? Will you submit to the infinite love and wisdom of God? Or will you choose to rebel? And ultimately in Peter's letter, what he's calling them to do is he's saying, stand firm in the grace of God. He's saying, look, this is the grace of God. That God before the beginning of time has planned all of these things out. And at the heart and center of his plan is the cross. And it is the greatest expression of his love and grace for you. What will you do? Will you receive that and embrace it? And will you be like Peter before the cross? Or will you be like Peter after the cross? This is the challenge that exists for these people. And this is the challenge that exists for each one of us. Why do we have so much problem with the doctrine of election? And why do we have so much problem with the idea of the foreknowledge of God? We have to come and say, number one, because we would like to take merit and credit for our place in our relationship with the Lord.
We would like to say I made a decision, I served well, I did A, B, C, D, and E, and the reason I'm here and having a great time at Cornerstone Bible Church this morning is because there was something I contributed to it. But Peter says to you, oh no, not at all. You're here because God chose you, and you're here according to the foreknowledge, the love of God that exalts you, and that ultimately exalts him. Why also do we struggle with this doctrine? Because oftentimes it's an issue of control. Who gets to make the decisions? Who gets to call the shots? Who gets the final say and who gets the credit? Those are things that we struggle with. And the question we have to come to grips with as we consider this doctrine is exactly that. As we think about elders in the church, as we think about leadership, as you think about philosophy of ministry and which way you're going, men as you think of shepherding your family and your children, the question is who gets to make the decisions and who gets to make the call. And the bigger question and the bigger reason we have a conflict or difficulties, we don't have a problem with the election of God when things are going well. We don't have a problem when his choices go our way in the way we think or the way we think is best or wise. But it becomes a different deal when there's a cross in our path, when there's a need for sacrifice, self-denial, and to die to ourselves and to sacrifice and to be sacrificed on the altar. And yet, what ultimately is the purpose of the foreknowledge of God? I'm going to close with this. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans 8, 28 and 29. Many of you know this by, by, by heart. Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Brothers and sisters, why did Christ die for you? Why did, if you're a believer, your father in heaven before the foundation of time in his mind's eye compose a symphony that culminates with Christ on the cross? Why did he do that? Why would he be willing to give his only beloved son, and allow that beloved son to be rejected, reviled, crucified, and humiliated and trampled upon and spat upon. Why? For what purpose? And ultimately to resurrect him from the grave. Election is about who elects you. Election is about how you're elected. And election is about the purpose to which you are elected. And the purpose very clearly in the foreknowledge of God before the beginning of time is that those who Christ would die for would not necessarily be people who could avoid pain, who could avoid suffering. Christ didn't die for an easier life. Christ didn't die to give you a Vicodin pill so you could never feel pain again. Christ didn't die to get you out of a difficult church situation that would be resolved quickly. Christ died for one purpose and one purpose alone, that you would be conformed to the image of the Son that you would become like him in his suffering, in his death, and in his resurrection. Why? For what purpose? For the glory of the master potter, for the exaltation of the grace of God, so that people could see and look at the patience and mercy of God in our lives, and so that they could see that we are a testimony to the glory of his grace and not ours. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Lord, everything that we have is yours. 
before a word is spoken and before we step in whatever we do, you have known and you have planned and nothing can stop your plan. And your plan centers on Christ and his cross and his death and his resurrection. Oh Lord, would you help us as frail and sinful people to appreciate the magnitude of love and grace you have given us in Christ. And would you help us, Lord, to be children of grace, children who are being molded into your image. And may even this day and this moment, would we celebrate the foreknowledge and love and your plan, and may we exalt you, and may we submit to your will and not ours in all these things. In your name we pray, amen.